China is angrily rejecting a New York Times report on the controversial detention centers in the western region of Xinjiang. Means up to 1.8 million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities have been sent to the camps since 2017. China doesn't want the world to see Xinjiang up close. To see the crackdown, it calls an answer to terrorism, mass incarceration, and indoctrination of Muslims. When numerous Western countries warn China about the growing concern about the persecution of the Uyghur ethnic group and evidence of detention camps in Xinjiang. Many leaders of Muslim-majority countries that make up the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, or OIC, instead endorse China's treatment of Uyghurs in an official document. The reason? To show appreciation towards China's efforts to, quote, providing care to its Muslim citizens, unquote. In their letter, the ambassadors commended China for its economic and social progress, effective counter-terrorism and de-radicalization measures, and a strong commitment to human rights. Once again, nobody can be more concerned about the status of Muslims anywhere in the world than Saudi Arabia. We support the developmental policies of China. The that letter is co-signed by nations from across the globe, from Asia, Africa, Latin America, Europe, and especially the organization of the Islamic Conference. The Indonesian government has refrained from speaking out on the issue. One of the common assumptions for Indonesia's lack of a strong stance on the Uyghur issue is due to its economic ties with China. In this episode of Indonesia In-Depth, we try to unfold the true motivation behind the stance and the bigger picture it paints on Indonesia's foreign policy. I'm Tanita. And I'm Sean Corrigan. We wrote this report because many people were asking with the extent of violations and persecution of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, why were many Muslim countries not making a fuss about it? And why in particular was there no pressure from Indonesia to say anything to China or do anything. And it turned out to be more complicated than we thought, but there were several reasons. That's Sydney Jones, a terrorism and security expert for Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Her think tank, the Institute for Policy Analysis and Conflict, or IPAC, released a report last June on the exact premise that we posed earlier. One very important one was that Indonesia does not want anybody commenting on Papua. And their understanding of the Uyghur issue, they see it as China's separatist issue. So for them to comment on Xinjiang and on human rights violations there would invite comments in return by the Chinese on Papua. So that was a major issue. Second issue was that many of the reports coming out about human rights violations in Xinjiang were coming out of the United States or Europe. And in particular by groups who were funded by the American government, at least in, uh, in one particular case. And 
the Indonesian Muslim organizations did not want to be sucked into what they saw as a propaganda war between the United States and China. So that was another reason. A third reason was that China went on a charm offensive of unimaginable proportions, inviting people from Natadu Ulama and Muhammadiyah, the two large social organizations of Muslims in Indonesia, to Xinjiang to see for themselves that there was no persecution. And by and large, the Indonesian organizations saw what the Chinese wanted them to see. And of course, they were very carefully managed uh, tours. In addition to that, the Chinese government made scholarships available for students from Natadul Ulama and Muhammadiyah to study in China. And for the most part, these Indonesian students had relatively positive experiences and did not, they say, encounter any discrimination as Muslims while they were in China. So therefore, uh, they were prepared to disbelieve the reports of human rights violations that came out. And then finally, there was a factor of the elections in 2019 in Indonesia, where the most strident voices urging Indonesia to speak out were coming from the hardline organizations associated with the Prabowo camp in the elections. And for that reason, many of the Muslim organizations, but also the Jokowi government in particular, did not want to get sucked into an issue that was already highly politicized. And they believed that to speak out would be either seen as capitulating to hardline pressure or would simply be seen as taking the same side as their arch rival in the campaign, who is, of course, now part of the government. So I think there were multiple reasons. Uh, the Chinese embassy here also made a point of going to different Muslim institutions and handing out largesse of various kinds. Last year, 37 states, including Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Myanmar, and the Philippines, co-signed a letter to the UN Human Rights Council in support of the Chinese government. It essentially commended China's achievements and effort in combating terrorism and extremism in Xinjiang. That is one of the arguments that China persistently attempts to use. But Indonesia has rarely touched on that argument and constantly prefers to use the separatism issue. So if Indonesia uses the security card, do you think that would give it more leverage? I don't think it would necessarily give them more leverage. It would just reinforce the Chinese government's perception of this entire ethnic group as a security threat. And you don't want that to happen. That's one of the tragedies of this whole issue, that the activities of a tiny minority of the Xinjiang population have been translated into basically a crime as the Chinese see it by an entire ethnic group of Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I suppose in a way it's akin to Papua in the sense that 
Uyghurs also feel that they're being made a minority in their own land as they get flooded by Han Chinese. Uh, and they also probably, if you scratch the surface in Xinjiang, you would find a majority that did want to have an independent republic of some kind. But most people are silent. Uh, on this issue. And the number of people who got involved in ETIM or TIP was just tiny, minuscule. And yet the entire population is now being punished for it. I think the other factors are more important. And, and I think that the security issue is one where perhaps in private, the there are some within the Indonesian government who feel sympathetic to that argument because of the Uyghurs who appeared in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. But there were a number of officials who were actually sympathetic, not to the fact they joined the Santoso struggle or the Santoso terrorism uh, group, MIT, but because there was an understanding and some sympathy with the plight of the Uyghurs. So the Indonesians were under intense pressure to send those Uyghurs that they caught back to China. And instead, they resisted that pressure and put them on trial. And the question is, what happens to them next year when they're released? Would they send them to, to Turkey? I think I read that they had, some of them had fake Turkish passports? I mean, yeah. would they so end up in Turkey the as an option? Yeah, so that's what the Philippines did. That's the humane option, is basically to say, we'll recognize the fake passports and we'll deport them, but we'll deport them to Turkey. And the Philippines did that with four Uyghurs that they caught in, uh, I think they were caught in Manila Airport. But in the case of Indonesia, it remains to be seen what happens to them. And I don't really know which way Indonesia will go. But first, we head to West Papua, which for decades has been locked in a violent and bloody struggle for independence from Indonesia. Unrest continues in the Indonesian province of Papua for a third day, with Jakarta sending in more security forces to manage the situation. There have been renewed calls for independence. Papuan protesters raising their pro-independence flag. Now, according to Unlike other countries, law, Indonesian officials often refer to the situation in Xinjiang as a separatist issue, keeping it strictly as a domestic affair within China, which it can't interfere with. This non-interference card often becomes an overarching pretext when Indonesia does not wish to engage in certain affairs. And the Uyghur situation is one such example. Our diplomacy is not megaphone diplomacy. I have summoned the Chinese ambassador, and I said to him, Indonesian Muslims will protest the Uyghur situation. And then he explained what Uyghurs are, and we decided not to intervene. This is diplomacy, soft diplomacy. Going back to the point of some of the majority Muslim countries, who haven't spoken out about the alleged human rights violations uh, in Xinjiang, but at some point actually defended China as fighting extremism. Countries such as Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and others have spoken out about the human rights in Myanmar and the Rakhine state with Rohingya. Do these countries adjust their stance depending on what their domestic issues are at home, as you mentioned with Indonesia? That with the Papuan issue, it's more about a, a separatist movement, where in Saudi Arabia and these other countries, it's more about uh, extremism. 
I think if you're talking about Pakistan, that is an economic question. Pakistan is totally dependent on China. Mm -hmm. And I think the likelihood that trade and economic dependence plays a major role in Pakistan would explain the Pakistani silence on the Uyghur issue. Mm -hmm. For Saudi Arabia, I think that there's a question of also wanting to stay on the good side of China, but also Saudi Arabia doesn't want to do or say anything that will draw attention to its own less than stellar human rights record. Aside from the fear of losing an important economic partner, another assumption that most observers have is that Indonesia assumes the responsibility to defend and protect fellow Muslim communities. This is perhaps most evident in the ways it advocates for Palestinian rights and the protection of the Rohingya people in Myanmar, for example. But generally, do you agree that religion, specifically Islam, has become a decisive factor in Indonesian foreign policy making? And do you think that it's what they feel that they are responsible for morally? No, I think if they felt that Islam was a critical factor in Indonesian foreign policy, that they would have spoken out more forcefully against discrimination of a Muslim minority in China. I think everything that the Uyghur issue shows is that the common religion is not the overweening factor involved. I think, I think there, there is a degree to which Islamic identity becomes a part of Indonesian foreign policy. Indonesia very much values its role in the OIC, for example, very much valued its role in negotiating the agreement with the MNLF in the Philippines in 1996. And that was partly because of the sense of a shared identity with the Moros in Mindanao. But I think in this case, again, it's the separatism issue combined with the fact that there's no domestic pressure to say anything. That's why the attitude of Natadulama and Muhammadiyah is so important. Muhammadiyah has been a little bit more critical than Natadulama and has, in fact, uh, urged that Indonesia speak out. But there are other people of in Muhammadiyah, who've also taken the stage-managed tours and have basically pronounced everything to be fine and happy in, in Xinjiang, which of course it isn't. Speaking of Muhammadiyah and Nadlatul Ulama voices, in February 2019, 15 delegates, mainly from Islamic mass organizations and a journalist, went on a week-long trip to Xinjiang. Mohidin Junaidi, is the head of the International Affairs and Cooperation Department at Muhammadiyah. And during that trip, he was the leader of the delegation. The Uyghurs are safe. It's safe. It's been very nice for the last three years, said an unknown member of the trip. Many of them have nothing but positive things to say about the trip. That religion there is practiced freely, people there are happy, and life seems nothing out of the ordinary. They told us that they don't tolerate any acts of radicalism or extremism. According to the information that we have, 
These buildings we see here were funded by the state, costing over 290 million yuan. Wow, great. Wow, cool. Except that this was one of the many trips funded by the Chinese government, targeting moderate Muslim majority countries like Indonesia in response to the increasing international spotlight on China after reports of alleged government efforts to cleanse the Uyghur religious identity from the Xinjiang province. Now, Junaidi was one of the few delegates who had a different opinion about the trip. How did that first trip, the delegation, begin? Um, you were here in Jakarta. Uh, was it the Indonesian foreign affairs that contacted you? Was it the Indonesian embassy in, in fact, Beijing? or? In fact, uh, uh, it has been facilitated by the embassy of China in Indonesia. So all of them are under the expense of the embassy of China in Indonesia. So we went there as a response from the Chinese stand with regard to the statement made by some Indonesian leaders, including Muhammadi leaders and MUI leaders, regarding the conditions of the Muslim in Uyghur. So prior to our departure, we made our own statement that our delegation must be given, given free access to talk with the local community. Mm-hmm. But uh, very unfortunate, uh, you know, the visit is under heavy surveillance. But your trip was with the embassy at that time? or No, uh, of course assisted by official from Chinese uh, embassy here in Dakota. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met with the chairman of CIA, China Islamic Association, while we were in Beijing, because we had very good relations with some leaders of CIA, since we have some MOU regarding the halal issues, I especially see. halal product mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. halal certificate between Indonesia and China. The China is one of the biggest country that always export the halal uh, ingredient to worldwide, halal product to Indonesia. Mm-hmm. When you arrived in, in the province, uh, you were with the CIA. Uh, with a uh, deputy CIA in the province, his name is Abdul Rakib, and of course he speaks Arabic a little bit, so we communicate sometimes in an Arabic language, but mostly it's translated mm-hmm. into the Mandarin language. We were taken to the hotel, and it seemed to me that everything well prepared, and uh, the, the, the agenda is very tight. So as soon as we entered the hotel, we found that some direction of Qibla was uh, well uh, there and uh, others. Uh, it seemed to me it's not normal because uh, once you are in Indonesia or in other Muslim country, the direction of Qibla is uh, definitive. You know, yeah, they put it yeah. in a large way. And, and the Qibla for our audience is... Uh, can you explain what the Qiblat is properly? Yes, it is not normal to me because the size is so big. I do not I know see, exactly I whether see. it is and newly... That, and, uh, and the function of the Qiblat is to know which direction Yes, we the Qiblat is okay, but the, the, the size of the Qiblat is not normal. So it's, it's not, it's, it was maybe a, a, a very recent addition to the room. 
Yeah, in my understanding, yes. And then, of course, they prepared everything for us, even the prayer mat and others. They said, look, this hotel mm-hmm. also apply the Sharia law and others. Mm-hmm. But and have all the food and thing uh, based on the Sharia rights. I see. But were you able to leave the hotel and sightsee and walk around and talk to people on the street? Not at all, because we were under heavy surveillance. Uh, whenever we go out, somebody should be with us, especially I'm head of delegation. I see. So you had a yeah. minder, basically. Yeah. Uh, definitely, uh, it's really sometimes, you know, tiring. I see. So you didn't have the freedom to meet uh, some of the local people unless they were on your schedule. Yes, uh, you know, uh, a journalist accompanying me he tried to buy a cigarette and he went out of the hotel after Mangrim time after the sunset <laughs> and then somebody you know the security said look uh, he was asked where he's going to and he said we would like to cigarette no look we give you a cigarette uh, so they, they don't want you wandering around out, yes, outside of... Yes, I, I understood that we were under heavy surveillance. But they are not giving us the, mm-hmm. the, the freedom of uh, movement. Mm-hmm. And during your stay there at this first stop, did you see anything in the neighborhood or no, did you visit thing, any sites? I tried to test them, you know. I asked uh, Mr. Abdul Ra'ud to take us to the mosque for... Fajar mm-hmm. prayer, for mm-hmm. Subuh prayer. He said uh, to us politely, look, the mosque is far away from here, so I couldn't take you there. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are using our logic, though we are visitors. So we yeah. are supposed to entertain the visitors. We are as the guests. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but very unfortunately, he said, look, the temperature is uh, minus uh, 17 and the mosque is far away from here. Very sorry, we could not take you and accompany you to the mosque. I see. So I have got my own interpretation that, why? Mm-hmm. Is there any, uh, there is no mosque around here? Yeah. And yeah. as uh, the foreign delegation representing Islamic organization, of course, we are very honored to be taken to the mosque and see how the local people observe their ritual thing there. And then did you visit anywhere else besides that? You weren't allowed to visit a mosque outside Yeah, of we the hotel. were taken to the mosque, but especially on Friday. Friday, I saw that those who are sitting in the mosque mostly are the elderly people. Elderly people. Elderly people with the same color of uniform. Interesting. Black so, and blue colors. I didn't see any child or any young man in the mosque. I see. That's And typically, you would see a mix of, of different ages and they wouldn't be dressing alike. Basically. Yes, sir. Same dress, same uniform. I Then I came to understand that based on the Chinese constitutions, that the religion can only be applied in a closed door. Mm, this is according to the Chinese constitution. Not allowed to be performed in open door. Mm-hmm. So you didn't see that mosque as being a publicly used mosque? Yeah, I, when I came there, all the congregation are already in. So I didn't see only our delegation come and join the congregation later. And when we went to the mosque, 
is next to the uh, National Islamic Universities mm-hmm. and nobody was in the mosque. Even we didn't pray there. So it a little bit strange for us why the mosque is uh, very quiet and when we were taken to the village who, where the majority of the population are the, from the Uyghur ethnic also asked them where the mosque is. As they said, look, the other side and we are not taken there. We would like to see how the mosque looked like there. Yeah, and yeah. How, how did they respond? Oh, they said, look, it's really far from here. So our time is very tight and we have to go to another place. Only other excuses. I see. And how many days in total? Was it a week? Yeah, almost. Almost a week. So we went to a place called Kashga. Kashgar is one of satellite city of Xinjiang. And we're taken to the old city, a very beautiful one. The majority of the population are Uyghur Muslims. Uh, I was told before there were about 100 mosques around the city, but now it remains they kept only one and big mosque. There was only one, I see. They said. Based information I received from the beauty imam who was accompanying and talking with me in Arabic language. So those people around us do not understand. But that guy was reminded by the other head of delegation from China and he was asked to speak in Mandarin because he was maybe watching from a distance that I was talking in Arabic. You know, I was in Xinjiang in 2004. It was at a time when it was still open, and I and a group of friends drove from Islamabad in Pakistan to Kashgar in China over the Karakoram Highway. And at the time we, we went across the border, we had to have an official Chinese guide. And the guide boarded the bus, continued on the rest of the tour with us, and then had to uh, guide us around Kashgar. And he was a Uyghur, and within about five minutes of being on the bus, he was telling us about his school, how his school was destroyed, how he could no longer go to mosque. It was an official employee of the Chinese government telling us about persecution. Did you have a sort of a review uh, meeting with any Chinese officials? Did they ask your opinion about your views or? Yes, uh, we had an internal meeting attended by 15 members of delegation. And without, uh, without on your own? the presence of the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And we told them, look, we spent about a week in Urumzi, Khotan, and Kastan, and Beijing. So we must have our own stand. People will question us on our return. Then we made a report and we submitted it to our foreign minister, yes. Mr. Retno Marasuri. Uh, Ibu Retno, yes. yes. So 
during our travel, our trip, accompanied by the beauty chairman of CIA, Mr. Abdul Rakib, we had some debate on the participant of those people who are considered as radicalist group. Because once you practice your religious right, if a woman put a head cap, she is considered as a radical. Mm-hmm. So if, you're, if a woman she wears deserves, the headscarf, yeah. She deserves to be sent to the re-education center. Is that what you've, you've heard or is that what you No, you we had or? discussion. I see. Yeah. So while she's in re-education center, she's banned to practice any of her religious rites. Not allowed to pray, banned to recite the Holy Quran, watching all the religious films and so on, even banned to do fasting. So you can imagine we Muslims, we perform our prayer five times a day. So if you stay there for a year or for six months and you are banned, yeah. from this ritual thing. I see, yeah. Therefore, on our return to Jakarta, we submitted a report to our minister. We said, look, uh, we have observed all thing, and we asked, we, re- we request the minister to summon the ambassador, ambassador mm-hmm. of China to Indonesia. Or we submit the report to the ambassador because we would, would like, we don't want, we tried to avoid meeting with the ambassador yeah. because we are afraid that somebody else might be, have their, our interpretation regarding our meeting with ambassador in China. So there was 15 members um, in the delegation, but if I recall correctly, some members actually had a different interpretation. I think from the Natu Ulama or NU organization said that the Uyghurs were treated well and that the Deputy uh, Secretary General of NU said that there's a problem with extremism in uh, Xinjiang and the government is providing education and life skills. Why do you think there was such a different interpretation of the trip? In our understanding, when we were taken to the Museum of uh, Violent Actions in the city of Urum City, the capital city of uh, Xinjiang, we were taken there. It takes us about one hour. They explained to us about the violent uh, action uh, perpetrated and uh, done by the Uyghur separatist movement, mm. Xinjiang or East Turkey yeah. separatist uh, movement. The separatist movement, yes. January 24, Xinjiang bombings. On But of course, we have got our own logic. All the pictures shown there 
of course, we cannot uh, say, it's not taken for granted at all that all the things are done by the Uyghur communities. Probably some fire or some accident because the pictures are some burn, we have got some bomb exploded and they show us also about the ISIS activities. So it was a museum uh, showing uh, terrorist actions and impact from the Uyghur community. Right, but from the government point of view, the, according to them, that all uh, violent actions are carried out by the East Turkestan Sparatist movement. Mm -hmm. There is no evidence because we are taken and, sh uh, you know, they show us those pictures. Do you think that had an impact on some of the, the members of the delegation, such as NU? No, from, from one angle, from NU, I, I don't want to blame them, any of them. I think from the point that the government is trying to minimize the violent action by issuing the policies, uh, avoiding the, action, the violent action happen, what you call is de-radicalization, what the Indonesia is, mm -hmm. is now. I think uh, he has got his own argument. But from my, my own understanding that when the people are taken to re-education center, they are given vocational training uh, matters. They are there to be trained, such as to be the chap, uh, barber, shop, and mechanic, and others. But at the same time, they are not allowed to perform their our ritual things. This is the problem. So, so religious activities are yes, not allowed? Yes, no, it's uh, completely banned. Though uh, uh, Sunday is holiday, but they are still not allowed to perform their rituals. I there. see, I see. So uh, he has got his own view. I cannot blame him um, about his own uh, statement, but probably he look at this problem it's our one angle only. And then there was another one, though, Pat, that um, this was in earlier this year. The secretary of uh, Muhammadiyah, uh, Agung Darnato, complimented the camp, saying that the camp is good. The students there are giving training and that they're receiving lessons on agriculture and opening restaurants and cooking and improving automotives. So he sort of praised the camps there. Was he on the, on the um, tour of the delegation? Yes. He is Deputy Secretary General of Muhammadiyah Central Board, Mr. Agung Danarto. Is, uh, of course, uh, once you look at physically, you know, all the training and the vocational activities are well done. But one thing is lacking, probably, probably, they are doing the thing while we were there. But we don't know exactly when we are out of the re-education center what happened to them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes this is the question if you just judge the thing from one angle 
of course, uh, you have got your own judgment. But again, no matter how good is training, but if psychologically a person is not happy, and they are under pressure psychologically, and of course, this is not good. So good from one point is not good from the other. What we heard from Junaidi is that he submitted a report to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs after the trip, but has never heard any follow-up since. Though the voices of Muhammadiyah and Nadlatul Ulama are important, as in some cases they have been direct recipients of China's many diplomatic efforts, their reputations have recently been questioned as there have been some suggestions that they prefer to not be very vocal after receiving financial donations and partnerships with government-affiliated organizations in China. The Chinese government has been very proactive in Indonesia on a PR campaign, approaching many organizations. Uh, one such organization has been NU, and the Chinese uh, government has donated funds for an orphanage, uh, for other institutions as well. NU has opened um, a headquarters in China, if I'm not mistaken. Some would say that NU has been much more lenient towards the situation and as a result. What are your thoughts about that? I do not know exactly whether you have very uh, reliable database about it. Uh, I read, but I am not sure whether the NU has received some sort of facilities officially or they receive it individually. Mm-hmm. But once you ask me about Muhammadiyah, Muhammadiyah said no. Yeah, I have no idea about it. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Maybe some issues, some rumors say that. Yeah. We need to have more clarifications. I see. I, I do not know exactly whether they have received some donation from the Chinese government or from private companies or pra- private companies belong to the Chinese investors in, in uh, Indonesia. Uh, shifting back to Muhammadiyah, according to a IPAC report, which is uh, written by uh, Ms. Sidney Jones in mid-2019, that Muhammadiyah was working on a similar agreement as with NU with the Chinese government, which would increase uh, cooperation between Muhammadiyah universities and hospitals with the counterparts in China. The Indonesian students of these programs were very willing to attest that there were no uh, Islamophobia going on in China, especially with the we uh, Muslims that they encountered there. How much does this experience of receiving scholarships to Indonesian students factor into persuading them that relations are good with, say, the, uh, with Muslims in China? Uh, look, uh, I'm a chairman of International Office, uh, Central Board of Muhammadiyah. I understand that some Muhammadiyah universities sign MOU with their Chinese counterpart. It's a bilateral cooperation between the private universities and the Chinese universities. Uh, in my understanding, that the MOU is meant to upgrade the, the standard of Muhammad University in 
domestically. So in, in Indonesia. In Indonesia. In order to have a better grade. Yeah, from C to B and from B to C. It is undeniable that to a certain extent, China has enjoyed a very developed and sophisticated uh, technology, especially in IT. We agree on certain part. He developed, for example, Huawei. And once you enter the China, all the Google will be off. Correct. Everything yeah. will be changed with WeChat and so on. Of course, in this particular angle, we agree that China uh, is one of developed country in IT. So, Muhammadiyah University need to learn, have their Chinese experiences because China enjoyed independence in 1948, whereas we Indonesia got our independence in 1945. Why China has enjoyed very good and very developed, whereas Indonesia is not able to catch up. So, do, do you think this cooperation can influence the Muhammadiyah organization? I don't think so, because uh, our Muhammadiyah students, uh, before they are sent overseas, they have to be trained. They are spiritually immune, hopefully, and it is not easy for them to be influenced or under foreign influence. I can't help but to really find a lot of similarities between the, the strategies of the Chinese government in keeping low of the news in Xinjiang and how Indonesia is also doing the same with Papua. I think the most recent one that I find it really interesting is the fact that on the one hand, Chinese government has been giving aids and, and money to, to Indonesian organizations. And the Indonesian government has also, at the same time, giving money and, and aid programs to Pacific Islander countries. Very recently, at the time of yes, attention. very much to keep the the Pacific countries on side. I think one of the big differences is that China has gone out of its way to invite people into Xinjiang, believing it can control them, mm-hmm. whereas the Indonesian government does not want foreigners wandering around Papua yeah. uh, because it isn't sure, perhaps, that they can be so easily controlled. Are there any other instances where China has conducted this successful PR campaign in Indonesia on other issues or anything like that? Yeah, Falun Gong. Uh, so the Falun Gong uh, sect, as you know, has a worldwide following, and it's seen as anti-China, very, it's seen very much as anti-government by the Chinese government. It's seen as a security threat. So the first and maybe the only radio station ever shut down by the National Broadcasting Commission in Indonesia was the Falun Gong station. What would be the ramifications for Indonesia, for example? Say they did speak out, what would the reaction be towards Indonesia from China? I think probably maybe calling in the ambassador, some kind of diplomatic slap on the wrist. But I don't think that Chinese-Indonesian 
economic relations would be seriously affected. I think both countries are too important to each other yeah. to basically put them at risk by uh, angry reactions to a statement of concern. And that's why I think the foreign ministry should probably look for more opportunities to say something pointed. Now, I think Iburetno has included mentions of the Uyghur situation in uh, reports to the Human Rights Council, but it's been buried. Uh, and there is no sense that the Indonesians are taking a strong position on this. So you submitted the letter to the foreign minister, and then was there any reaction? Was there any response? Yes, our minister said, look, we are trying to get in touch with the ambassador. But she also at the same time requested me to talk with the ambassador. Yes, your secretary ambassador of China to Jakarta got in touch with me many times and requested us to have a meeting with the ambassador. But again, I haven't received any reply from our minister. Therefore, until today, there is no meeting between us and the ambassador of China to Indonesia. Mm -hmm. If the thing happened, probably, yeah, they must uh, have uh, what you call uh, misinterpretation emerge as if we receive some donation and, you know, you know, because we met with the ambassador. Luckily, we, so far, we don't have a chance to see the ambassador. So you come back from the, the trip to China, you submit your findings to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Indonesia, and there's no response? There's no communication with them since? Uh, you know, probably our minister has got her own way to pass on the report to the ambassador of China to Indonesia. But since our meeting with her, I have no communication and there is no reply so far. I, I perceive that probably she has spoken, but she doesn't want to pass his own the, uh, the result to us, uh, to the delegation. I'm sorry, you said she probably what, sir? Probably she has uh, met uh, with the ambassador of China or probably has submitted our report to him. Mm -hmm. personally, but uh, we had no communication yeah. with them, so nothing, with the minister. No, no public communication. Yeah, we have got a positive thinking. Neither economics nor religious identity has influenced the Indonesian government to speak out about the situation in Xinjiang. Like many other OIC countries that chose to view the situation in Xinjiang as a terrorism and extremism issue to reflect their own domestic situations at home, Indonesia, too, often uses the Uyghur separatist movement as their main argument. Voices from important groups in Indonesia are divided on the Uyghur issue, and there has been no meaningful follow-up or action as of the time of this episode. As if all this is not convincing enough for Muslim-majority countries to speak out about the Uyghurs, there is yet another issue that could potentially discourage countries even more. As China's largest provider of innovative artificial intelligence products and solutions, 
Face++ has launched the end-to-end -end intelligent security hardware Beijing has developed solutions. new highly sophisticated surveillance and security systems built on artificial intelligence Facial recognition, that have become effective, body scanning, deployable at scale, and, and available to countries via soft loans from China. Countries are now eager to get their hands on the Chinese surveillance curtain that has been deployed in Xinjiang for their own use at home. What I worry about is that China is using Xinjiang now as a basically a laboratory yeah. for sophisticated uh, surveillance technology. China is positioning itself to lead the world in artificial intelligence, surveillance technology. And I can see governments around the world, including security forces in Southeast Asia, wanting to get hold of that technology and that becoming another reason for not speaking out. Indonesian minister Luhut Pajaitan. American technology is very good, you know, but the last five years, I think the Chinese technology is, uh, is much better. I think to some extent, I agree with America. In the age of AI, uh, where data is the new oil, China is the new Saudi This episode is produced by Sean and myself, Tanita, edited by Risky, and researched by Veronica. We love reading your comments and feedbacks. You can send them to our email at info at indonesiaindepth.com and follow us on our socials, Twitter at IndoIndepth, our Instagram account at IndonesiaIndepth, or website at IndonesiaIndepth.com. Thank you so much for listening.